Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Tom Secker, welcome back to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us to uh, discuss this movie today. Yeah, I mean, thanks for having me. It's uh, always great to be talking with you guys. And this is a quite brilliant but also terrible film that we're going to be talking about with some amazing ideas and themes in there. I mean, this this is going to be a good one. I can feel it. Yeah, it does. it does wax between... It's, it's some moments are, are, are little spots of brilliance and other ones are just beyond idiotic. It's like who, what Jack Bauer advisor put this, this idea in this movie. <laughs> Although I think this, this might predate Jack Bauer by just a little bit, not much, just a little bit. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about uh, the siege with Denzel Washington, uh, Annette Benning and uh, Bruce Willis. It is uh from 1998, where a series of terrorist cells are committing bombings in New York City, and Anthony Hubbard, played by Denzel Washington, is the lead FBI agent, the assistant special agent in charge, trying to take this down. Um, Annette Benning plays uh, Elise... I can't remember her, her last name at the moment, but her name keeps changing. She works for the CIA, so that's... Uh, that's a fun thing watching her do the revolving door of names and having different people call her different things. Hmm. Um, so uh, before we get into the story of the of the movie, and I'm, I'm going to do my best to limit this as we go forward, but going through the script the last few days, I've noticed some really really um, interesting changes to the main script. Because I got I actually got a copy of the original script, and going through it, there was a lot of things that really stuck out to me that would have made this movie different and possibly received differently. Um, one common thing that everything I think everybody needs to know is that the um, there were a large group of Arab Americans that protested this film when it first came out. Uh, there were claims of that they were, were scapegoating Muslims, that the imagery in the movie is shows Muslims praying, Muslims responding to walking to prayer call, uh, washing their hands. And it shows all this different imagery with really without very much context. And if you've ever seen the movie, I'm, um, you probably remember what I'm talking about. But with the changes, it really made it into an entirely different film. So the film begins with a ambush 
um, of a sheik. I want to say he's believed to be in Lebanon at the time the it happens, and uh, uh, I assume they're Americans, but I guess they could be Israeli. But special forces takes into custody this this sheik. Um, he is uh, he's Iraqi by uh, nationality. They don't really give us a whole lot other than the name they give for him is a sheik Ahmed bin Talal, and that uh, that he was Iraqi. Um, this is this is the first really big change with the script, and essentially what happened is that as opposed to some of the quick cuts they used to imply the action at the scene, because we don't really see any specific battle, we hear a bunch of machine guns go off behind a wall, and then some goats run away, and they take the sheep away somewhere. Well, in the original script, it goes very much in the vein of The Dark Knight, where there's a balloon set up, and it, a, a C-130 comes through and snatches ye old sheik from the ground and takes him that way. There's a whole sequence that they have set up for that. So that entire thing was removed. I'm wondering maybe if that was to soften the idea of the, um, of the ambush, of the, the rendition, the kidnapping essentially is what they, what they did with this guy. Um, What I'm wondering about that, now that you've brought it up, I did not know about this. Maybe that, I mean, you're, you're talking about a skyhook, right? One yeah. of those things on the front of a plane and it yeah. grabs the rope and yanks the person off the ground. These were first seen in films, uh, Thunderball, I think is the first film where that was ever used. And there is also one in the Green Berets a few years later. Um, those things aren't easy to get your hands on particularly not if you want it to work kind of semi-properly so it looks good on camera. Yeah. Um, I bring this up because the only ones that I know about, except for In the Dark Knight, um, where they actually used a real plane, uh, it was provided either by the military or the CIA. So I'm wondering, did they go to the DOD for support for this movie? Because the story that I've read, and I've never come across documents backing this up or proper interviews or anything that I, I would say sol is solid, but I have read that they did go to the DOD and ask them for support on this movie and were turned down because of the whole premise about, you know, General John McClane invading New York City. Um, and so maybe that was changed in part because they couldn't actually do it. From a production point of view, that's a very difficult thing to hire someone privately to do. That would probably be very expensive. So the only real option is to go to someone like the Air Force. Um, and if they said they wouldn't work on the film, then you basically just can't have that in your script anymore. You just can't do it from a production point of view. There may be other reasons why it was changed. And that story about them getting rejected by the DUD may not actually be true. Uh, I should you know, clarify, I really don't know what the status of the relationship between this movie and the Pentagon was. Yeah, that would, that would make sense. Um, this was, I mean, we, we, I wouldn't say this was before the era of more CGI stuff. I'm guessing that that was how they did most of that scene for the dark Knight, aside from probably the actual plane flying by was, it was all CGI. So that didn't leave them any, it, no, no issues with trying to get it done but if it was pre that time where it would have been much harder and much more expensive you know the dark knight was however many million dollars to just just to get produced so um the other thing from the beginning that was not included um 
was some dialogue from General Devereaux, the guy that Bruce Willis plays. And in this whole time in the actual film, he just seems like kind of a looming figure. He's nearby. He's, you know, I guess implied to be the boss, but he doesn't say very much. Well, in the original script, he tells the Sheik after capturing him, quote, nobody knows you're here, not your people, not even my president. You'll die here alone and be buried unknown, barring some miracle. And the Sheik, he speaks a few words in Arabic, and Devereaux says, God, God? And he's like, what you eat, whether you eat, sleep, pain, absence of pain, I decide. I make the day and the night, even the way you got here. A hand that reached down from the sky. God, I am your new God. So that whole line, all those lines were, were not included at all. And it really gives a much sharper edge to Devereaux in terms of the political nature of what he's doing here, along with anything that might um, be implied as uh, uh, security type stuff. Um, and, and I think, and that theme continues for the rest of the film that the, the most, the, there's a lot of non PC things that he says about that. And so I, I think that that's what they were going for is they wanted to trim the general back, make him a little less, a little less fashy, <laughs> a little less, a <laughs> uh, little less bootlicking than he, he actually was. Well, I found it weird because that's literally like the first scene you know, once you have the kidnapping and then you just see the general and the sheikh in the cell and they don't say anything. Yeah, and I was, that made, like, it made me think, oh, they must have cut something out here because it looks like it was set up to have a conversation. Definitely, definitely. Um, and as you, as you see the, you know, the story progress when we get to them capturing and torturing that guy, there's, there's more that surrounds that event as well that they didn't include. Um, the other thing from the opening of the movie that we have to mention is that in the very opening scenes, even before the kidnapping, there are interspliced little news clips of President Clinton talking very broadly and vaguely about terrorism. And then it also includes some footage of the Kobar Towers bombing that happened in Saudi Arabia. Now, um, the script actually mentions like an un... It, that it was a fictional thing that the it, they the bombing that they're trying to connect this to was not actually Kobar Towers. It, um, it was just a, a included fictional bombing, but that's what ended up getting used to kind of lead people in in the beginning of the movie. These all this imagery of of bl blown up building. Um, they call it the army barracks. It was it was a barracks and it housed Air Force personnel that were working for Southcom. Um, doing the, the no-fly zone uh, over Iraq and uh, other places. Um, so then we get we get more in, into the movie. We have a bus blow up that actually doesn't blow up because the guys used paint bombs instead of actual bombs. But it's clear that they were doing some kind of test run. They probably wanted to see what the police response, the federal government response was going to be, what it looked like. Um, hold on, find my next point here. They find a guy through the INS who had smuggled some money in and got caught. 
it was under the $10,000 cash limit and it find, comes out later that he was a, a mule that he was providing someone's dowry to them that it had nothing to do with financing terrorists or criminal organizations of uh, any kind but they let him go trying to track down uh, the the bigger fish so to speak and the FBI watches him and they watch as, as a CIA van as some contractors or whoever it is that are working with the CIA snatch him up in broad daylight in Brooklyn which the movie I, never something, really... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, man. Oh, I just, I, something that caught my eye when I was watching that part when they were tailing him was the fact that Tony Shalhoub's character says, like, oh, you know, if we had micro, or if we could listen, then, you know, we would, if we could listen in on them, then we could hear what they were saying. And it was weird. It was like, because it's funny, somebody who's worked in the intelligence community post 9 11 trying to see the way that things worked pre 9 11 mm-hmm. and so it is really funny uh interesting for me to see that to see like oh like they couldn't they didn't have surveillance because there was a law against that and then now post patriot act you know that's that's fucking like nothing yeah and uh, <laughs> it just i thought it was funny how it's like they're kind of trying to make the case that like oh, we shouldn't impede law enforcement's ability to do what they need to do. No, they, uh, they, to me, they very much set up this scene as kind of the beginning of a FBI, CIA back and forth in terms of who are are the good government guys versus the bad government guys when it Mm -hmm. eventually comes out to the military. And this whole scene, you know, that they go to the house, they arrest everybody that's in the CIA safe house, including the guy that they were after. And Elise, this is their, um, actually, I think this is their second meeting because she had showed up at an evidence spot before. Um, And Hub just takes him in. You know, he just did, these are my callers. These guys are under arrest. To him, it seemed... Entirely non-essential that they were uh, CIA. He didn't mind. It didn't seem like he minded any of the dust that that man ended up getting kicked up out of that uh, situation. <laughs> then we move to the second bus, which Hub and Elise and Frank Frank Haddad, played by Tony Shalhoub in this one. Um, Actually, it's important that we mention him because they, they, they say that he is Lebanese and he makes numerous mentions about um, fighting with either Israel or fighting with Hamas. That we know mentions about what these, what those their people did to my village in '75, um, which I think was part of the first Intifada. I can't. I'm not not specific about that, but um, so, anyways, Elise Hub and and Frank get called to another bus bombing, another bus that has been taken, it's been taken hostage by terrorists. Um, and so they're, they're getting themselves set up all the different federal, all the different assets coming in, talk about calling in the bomb squad and calling in SWAT and calling in hostage negotiators. And Elise uh, suddenly freaks out as she realizes that the bombers were waiting for the cameras, you know, that they wanted everybody watching. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this felt really hokey to me because do most terrorists wait for the media to be in a good filming position before they blow something up? Is that, I mean, it, it would be kind of an odd 
choice, but the 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 effect is going to be the same, whether it was all on the, on the media or it all happened afterwards, and they're only filming the aftermath. Um, so, honestly, go ahead. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that felt pretty tenuous to me as well. Is that like as soon as the helicopter to you know TV helicopter yeah turns up? All right, now now we're in serious trouble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it, that's not really how these things work in the history of terrorism. There is very very few instances of the terrorists prior to carrying out whatever form of attack you know whether they're storming an embassy or blowing up a bus or whatever it may be, waiting for TV cameras to show mm-hmm. up. And it doesn't matter. No. Um, it really doesn't. because in some, in some ways, it could be better that it's not filmed, which means that they're able to propagandize it in ways that they couldn't because that part would be on film. For exactly. sure, for sure. Yeah. Well, and I mean, as you know, I, I wrote a book and made a couple of uh, like YouTube documentaries about the London bombings of 2005. Three of those were on underground trains, no video footage whatsoever of them. And the fourth was on a bus, and that was apparently never captured on CCTV. There is no footage of it. There is only pictures and video of the aftermath. Hmm. And that was visually that you know, the whole bus bombing thing especially was extraordinarily effective because people are so familiar with those buses and people, you know, every single like intelligence-based or terrorist-based TV show since that bombing has had some sort of, you know, flashy intro sequence that includes a London bus. Mm -hmm. Um, That has become the symbol, the visual symbol of kind of terrorism in this country if you like but it wasn't on camera no one caught it on camera they didn't announce that they were going to blow up this bus and then wait until itn turned up before actually put, <laughs> pulling the bus you know it, it, that's just not how it works yeah it's ridiculous so then the the next thing was also pretty hokey to me too so so hub has you know they're like i said they're getting all their assets set up to deal with this bombing and hub is trying to talk to the bombers and Frank is uh, is there translating, so there's somebody actually sh- speaking in Arabic, sharing everything that that Hub says, and so they're not saying anything. I don't think in the entire scene that they say anything on the radio back to Hub. It's all just silence. Hmm. Um, and so Hub asks them to let the kids go. There's a number, I'd say at least half a dozen, maybe more, young children on the bus, and he ask them if they would let the kids go, you know, just kind of that initial hostage negotiator. I'm going to try to get something small, see, see how they'll react and everything. Um, and they end up doing that. They end up letting the kids go and the kids run back into the arms of SWAT team and the police officers on the, on the scene. Um, and so the next thing hub does is he offers himself in place of the hostages he says, I, you let these people go and I will take their place. That way you don't have to worry about bathroom runs or wanting pizza for people to eat. No, no issues. I don't know about you guys, but the idea of a single FBI agent offering his life in exchange for all these hostages felt very John McClane, you know, Jack Bauer-esque. It really, it really, it, that doesn't happen in real life. It's, it's a nice visual for us you know okay cool he's willing to sacrifice himself to save these people but there's no practicality to it 
our ter- and our, our terrorists really going to do that? They're going to let all these hostages go and take this one FBI agent and think that they're on equal footing still. Um, and so they don't, again, they don't say anything. And then Hub asks them to let go of the elderly people. There's some older people on the bus and, you know, same with the kids. Can we please, you know, can you please let these older people go? They, you know, they don't, um, you don't, you don't need them. And they open the doors and the elderly people start going. And it's right then when the bus blows up. And I mean, blows up. I actually felt that that was as far as them showing the car, the, um, the scene after the initial blast and everything. I thought that they did a pretty good job with that with Mm -hmm. the exception of, of hub that hub was close enough to the blast that it should have done some really severe damage to him at the very least temporary deafness. Um, but he, he lays there for a minute. Frank runs over and helps him up and he, and he gets up, which isn't, it, it, it wouldn't happen with how close he was to the bomb. And that was another place where they cut a part out of the script that a short time after this in the original script, hub is at his apartment taking a shower and it's showing him washing his hair and out of his hair coming, it's coming drops of blood and little bits of broken glass. Now, that's an effective, an effective visual. That's how close he was. There's blood, there's bits of glass, you know, you're, there, there's, there's something really meaningful to that. But that entire thing just gets pushed off to the side. And there's some other, you know, he has some other smaller injuries and you see him messing with them at different times. He's giving a, brief, a really loud briefing and his nose starts to bleed and that yeah 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 those are both good inclusions but the shower thing could have really solidified how dangerous it was and that he he didn't escape it as much as he seemed like he would have honestly this whole bus bombing sequence i felt was it's kind of a letdown because the film up until that point is really quite solid and well done and well paced and you know looks good and everything mm-hmm. and, and then they have this whole thing and i mean firstly like a lot of people who grew up watching movies in the 1990s as soon as i hear there's a bomb on the bus i think quick better call <laughs> keanu reeves and sandra Bullock. Um, yeah yeah um and, and of course it goes horribly wrong so maybe they should have but um <laughs> Bit, a bit of a casting mistake maybe in this movie but more seriously the whole way in which he's communicating with these apparent terrorists on on this bus um is uh through the the lebanese character the fbi agent one who's blatantly based on ali sufan yeah um and for the first part of that scene every time denzel washington says something is it tony shaloub is that his name mm-hmm. yeah um he repeats it in presumably Arabic. Mm-hmm. And then when Denzel wanders away from the protective kind of cloak of the police cars and the blockade that they've set up, and he's just talking into the radio on himself, we never see the other guy translating anything. And it felt like a really desperate attempt to go, look how heroic Denzel Washington's character is. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. and it, it, But it meant the scene kind of fell apart at that point, because the whole thing here is like he's supposed to be adopting the more peaceful, tactical, negotiating approach. He's not just sending the SWAT guys in or sending, you know, shooting them or whatever. Um, and bizarrely, the message of the scene seems to be, actually, we shouldn't negotiate because it doesn't work anyway. Yeah. Um, 
so well, that undermines their the attempt to heroize that approach and that character. And right. then you have the thing where the actual explosion goes off, which is done quite realistically. It looks quite like an actual explosion in a lot of ways. Um, but I'm, I'm like, doesn't he want to go and get checked for internal injuries or something? Isn't it, you know, this guy's just been, I mean, he's only about what, maybe 30, 40 meters away when this very he's powerful high, yeah. high explosive goes off. Um, but no, we just see him in the next scene. He's, he's giving his briefing. Yeah, yeah. And he gets a nosebleed. That's it. You know what I mean? That's the scene where they're trying to establish the threat. The terrorists are a serious, dangerous threat. But it's okay because you can be within, you know, 30, 40 feet of their bombs going off and all you'll get is a nosebleed. I mean, it just, it was so confused, that scene. Um, This is where what I mean about the film being kind of brilliant but also terrible is that the premise is great, it's a high concept thriller. And it really delivers on its concept. It really pushes that concept to places that you wouldn't normally expect a film to go to. But some of its execution and delivery is so cheesy and poorly planned out. And I don't know what the you know technical advisors and people on this film were doing with some of this stuff. Because it's just like, you would never do it that way. That's, that just wouldn't happen. You would never attempt something like that. It, it's, it's so bizarre. Um, in that respect and that sequence in particular is where that part of the movie really kicks off that tension between we're aiming high but our execution and our actual knowledge of how the world works isn't you know it doesn't meet up with it doesn't get to the same heights as our ambitions in this film well something that that bothered me too is you know you get to the bombing or you get to the the when they get to the scene Elise says to them, it's like, all right, there's no good options here. This is a lose-lose situation. Do you want to lose a lot or do you want to lose small? And by that, she means shoot the people who are in the way so that they can kill the, the terrorists instead of like letting them blow the bus up. And they just would kind of gloss over that. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, no, like this is really indicative of showing the difference between their characters. Right, like Elise is part of the gray world of the CIA, and Hub has like you know he has his morals and his like rah rah law enforcement shit, and like that was really important. Uh, like I felt to bring that up, but then they just kind of like gloss over it, and it happens anyways. <laughs> yeah, I I I felt from the earlier scene where Hub and his FBI agents take over their. Uh, do a raid on the on the CIA safe house that they're they're drawing that very specific line with hub being the 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 good good guy and Elise being like you said of of the gray world of the intelligence community um and and you can see that as the movie progresses that they really that they they wanted to even if only momentarily take the CIA down a little bit in terms of what they were offering here um, but you can really see that hero notion that they wanted to put with on Hub, and and it continues for the whole movie. You know, he is mm-hmm. he is the leader's leader throughout the the rest of the film. I feel like this movie is more about Elise than like anybody. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, she's the one that touches on all the pieces and all the characters, and like, yeah. I mean, and as we go on, like, I mean, we'll talk more about that, but it's just. Like, 
all of the questions and like the the stuff that just never really gets answered about you know what are we doing in the Middle East like what does the CIA's role mean like does it make things better or not and they just they never answer any of those questions. <laughs> See, I, I I think that the original script wanted to ask more harder questions of Elise's character as it went on, and some of those were hemmed down as they went along. Um, but it was definitely wanting to push, you know, that that Leo over intelligence community as far as the story went. Um, but you're right, though, is that she did touch everything in the movie, which they mentioned at the very beginning of the film about how the CIA is not allowed to operate domestically. Yet for the rest of the film, Hub doesn't bother Elise about that, that he knows she's a member of the CIA. And there she is in his office wearing an office badge doing investigative work that is absolutely illegal for her to be doing and we never hear anything about oh the president authorized this or some other some other dod or intelligence community figure said fine send this person or let them do what they do but it's just not mentioned again it just it's just entirely avoided no sure yeah. sure the, the cia officer who they suspect of having some kind of covert relationship with the very terrorists that they're hunting is somehow allowed to inveigle her way into the criminal investigation into those terrorists mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah even though the cia isn't actually supposed to be legally allowed to do any of this no even if that situation was in itself somehow plausible which it isn't um although it does actually still you know it does happen i'm just Mm -hmm. saying it's like you know that sounds ridiculous on its face on top of that you have the fact that the cia is at least on paper not allowed to do any of this at all um i know what you mean uh kagan the the, she is the most interesting character in the story and her what she's up to is the most interesting thing in the story because after a while you kind of get bored of denzel washington doing the same thing denzel washington does in every movie where he plays the, you know sort of you know, intelligent diplomatic guy who who it's almost like his voice and his ability to speak is his superpower um and, and you're you're more like wondering i, I kind of want to know what elise is doing right now I'm kind of got bored of listening to this guy saying the same thing scene after scene. Can we find out a little bit more about what's going on with her? And as you say, it sort of poses these questions, not as hard as it could pose them, but, you know, they do come up, but they're just left hanging. It's like yeah. just like Homeland in that respect. Yeah. All of these same questions come up at some point quite explicitly in dialogue in episodes of Homeland, but no one ever fucking answers them. No one ever actually says the reality is the CIA is effectively a secret society crossed with a criminal organization masquerading as a security agency. Yep. Um, which is like the most accurate one-line description I can really give of them, to be honest. And <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still waiting after years and years, as you know, of watching every movie about the CIA I can possibly get my hands on. I'm still waiting for one to actually just say that, like bluntly. Um, and this film evades answering those questions in the same exact same way as so many of the more recent products. In fact, I mean, watching it, I was kind of impressed by just how much it looks and feels like a modern spy thriller. It has aged in some ways really rather well. Yeah. Um, and in other ways, really not so much. Uh, but well, Henry, it just I'll let makes you get... me sad, like that. 
<laughs> I mean, just when you when you look at it with context, because I remember watching this when it came out and just being like, you know, I was a kid, so I was like, oh, cool. But then like when you watch it like post 9-11 and just seeing the way that like everything that we've done, how much it's changed and like especially how much the American psyche has changed. It's just like it's just sad to see how like I mean, people who would be like calling these, like asking these questions, you know, there's a lot of people now that don't even care to ask those questions. Yeah. So, um, so we move on to the, the fallout from the bombing, um, which the, the FBI goes to work and they're, you know, guys sleeping in their, in offices and working all hours of the night. Um, they end up finding a, a severed finger of one of the bombers and they identify him as a Palestinian that he came from, from Ramallah in the West bank and that he was also on the terrorist watch list. And the movie clearly, you know, points out is what, how did he, was he able to get into, into the country? And then they find out that it was a student visa, which was given by the guy they find, next but they don't that's another thing that they never return to is they they bring up the question of how did this guy get in the country but it's never concretely established how he actually did if there was any attempt to cross check him with the terrorist watch list if there was anything else done or it was just um that this guy signed a student visa and that was all he needed and you know kind of pull pulled the thread on exactly how easy is it for quote unquote these people to get into the United States. And so they, they, I think, feel like they really left that to the viewer over having something concrete. Be like, okay, we found this particular hole in doing the watch list because it just, just because, and I'm, I'm not a fan of the terrorist watch list, but just because there's a problem with one part doesn't mean that the rest of it does not actually do that. You know, I'm sure the terrorist watch list has probably saved us a time or two. I don't have any specific proof of that, but again, you know, a broken, a broken clock is, right twice a day hmm. um i will say in the sequence where um the token asian american lady in the fbi office mm-hmm. is giving that little briefing about the visa yes. and explaining that first you will notice on the whiteboard behind her when she's talking about well, how did he get this visa who, who sponsored this visa the the name cia is written with a big circle drawn around it <laughs> And I have a feeling that may have been the production crew having a little, like, maybe little rebellion, fun. perhaps, because it's kind of heavily implied. You know, there must have been some kind of CIA shenanigans going on that got this guy into the country. But like you say, in terms of the plot, it's just sort of dropped. It's left hanging like so much is. And yeah. I have a feeling that may have been a, just a tiny little, they weren't standing for that. They were going to stick a big signpost in there for anyone who cared to look nice. as to you know what's really should have been said here well they immediately following that they go and find um samir who is another one of the he's he's a at at this point in the film he's just a um he's a professor at brooklyn college and he seems you know quite innocent and unassuming when they first start to you know they talk to him and shove him in the back of a cop car and um he's talking to frank which means that there's a there's a cultural 
understanding or a, at least association there that the other agents wouldn't particularly have. Um, Samir actually calls uh, calls Frank a woman. Um, it had to. I was trying to remember the specific reference. Um, it's, it's like you were part of this. You were. It wasn't. It wasn't Hamas or it was some other. I think want to say Palestinian thing. And Samir is like, no, but the only the only guys I know who didn't were women like you. And obviously it pisses Frank off a lot, and he actually hits hits Samir. But you know, there's another that the there's the connotation of men and women in Muslim in Muslim societies is very different than ours. And calling another Arab man a woman, I would imagine that is a, a I mean, we as a, you know American dudes take horrible offense to that, even if it's true. But I think that there's an additional layer there for Frank because of where Frank comes from. He was born in Lebanon. Um, and then eventually got a got a visa to come to the U.S. Um, let's see. He uh, and then in the scene after, Hub tells him he'll have Frank's badge if he hits someone again. And Frank says that one of these days I will tell you the horrible things that his people did to my village in '75. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I want to say that I think that was <clears throat> during the first Intifada. Um, but I, I need to I need to double check that. But there's a, a definite kind of connection here. They want to make, you know, Frank, if he's if Frank's the good Muslim that, OK, well, the good Muslim came and joined our team. And he's talking about the horrible things that somebody connected to Samir does. And it's just kind of adding those little threads again without much context, without much um, any any follow up or anything. Then uh, we move forward a little bit, and uh, General Devereaux that we met earlier in the movie um, is in Hub's office, and they, you know, he, they both know who each other is. And uh, Hub mentions that he's a veteran of the 82nd Airborne, uh, which, of course, General Devereaux's general said, "Yeah, he said he I was I was commanding the 173rd at the time when Hub was in 82nd." So now we have a. A, a, vet, a veteran meet cute, if we want to call it that. Um, but in terms of, you know, it changes the, the dynamics here because understanding that somebody is a fellow veteran and attaching their service together, it, 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 it changes that. It's kind of like the cultural thing I mentioned earlier with Frank and Samir is that we, we you know, we, those, those different connections that we make with people without really making them with anyone. Um, yeah, there's a certain bond of understanding of some sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Hub mentioned something about President Clinton being concerned about terrorism. I'm saying President Clinton because that was the frames they used earlier in the movie. I don't remember the word Clinton coming out of anybody's mouth through the whole movie. They did reference the president, but not Clinton specifically. And they also sort of vaguely referenced the Lewinsky scandal mm, at mm. one point. It's pretty clear that the president is Clinton. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but they, but I, at least they, they had that separation that they could, they could imply it without broadcasting it to the heavens. Mm -hmm. um, and then Hub and, Hub and Devereaux have a, a pretty easygoing conversation about 
using troops on the ground there. Devereaux asks him if he's chasing his tail. Um, and then um, Elise comes in and Elise sees Devereaux. And there's also a, a bit of a changing of the guard there because I'm guessing Elise had no idea that Devereaux was involved in any of this until he saw his, his grinning face. Um, and so there's, uh, they kind of, kind of break up from there. Um, then the FBI, um, they get a tip on, um, uh, a possibility for the remaining terrorists of the, of the cell. Um, they have to get a warrant, which was another omission from the original script. The original script had two very short cutscenes that involved hub talking to a federal judge. And that would have really helped demonstrate his resolve in terms of trying to do his job while the judge who did, who did give him significant pushback. The judge mentioned a, a comment like, um, that black people have committed a, a whole lot of violence in this city during the last 20 years. But if I were, if an, uh, an officer of the, the law was to come into my courtroom and tell me that they wanted to take all African Americans from a particular area, um, and put them in a stadium, of course I would say, you know, fuck no. Um, and I feel like that removal, you know, it really kind of streamlined that whole process. You know, a lot of people don't understand that sometimes it takes a huge amount of immense work to get a warrant, to write all the affidavits, to have all the appropriate information, and then to convince the judge. And I think that would have showed Hub's character in a different way if you saw him negotiating with or, or, or trying to convince this judge versus it being a streamlined thing where we need a warrant. Oh, we don't have the warrant. Oh, hey, we got the warrant. And that's it. There's no other understanding of what happened other than, than that. It's also, in terms of like the, uh, um, I don't know quite what word to use, the ideological dialogue that's going on in the subtext of this movie, it also would have presented a bit of more of that, of actual pushback against that. Not in terms of how it depicts the American institutions and everything, but in terms of the themes for the audience. That you actually have to have that argument and that dialogue for people to understand what's at stake here. You know, at what point does the government have a right to violate someone's privacy, spy on them, tap their phone, whatever it may be? Most people would agree there comes a point at yeah. which that is justified. But it's so rare that we actually hear the arguments, even around a specific case like in this, where it's, you know, one very particular group of people they're trying to spy on. Um, it, in order for people to think those things through and in order for people to understand what's at stake for them in the real world, mm -hmm. you actually have to have that dialogue on screen. And so taking it out which may have been for story reasons or may have been for political reasons or maybe a bit of both, means that it just seems like, oh, it's just a standard thing. We don't have to worry about how the FBI get warrants to spy mm -hmm. on people. It's just a normal thing, background stuff, doesn't really matter. Um, and also, the sequence where uh, Elise and Denzel Washington's character, whose name I can never remember, um, they're walking through, as far as I can tell, the very apartment block where this terrorist cell are, the very people that they're supposed to be spying on, basically having a discussion about them as they walk up the stairs, mm -hmm. quite a loud discussion about them. <laughs> and then when they get to the top, 
Uh, Frank is sat there and he's got the warrant in his hand. That's terrible tradecraft. Oh, obvious. oh yes, that's horrible. You um, it's like those sequences where you see people walking through CIA headquarters having a conversation about whatever top secret thing they're working on, and they're surrounded by like three dozen people who could overhear them. And you just <laughs> think that's that's not how you would do these things. Again, where were the technical advisors to stop them from doing this like horrendously stupid thing? Because <laughs> these are supposed to be crack FBI agents, right? These are supposed to be kind of our heroes. They're the clever guys who yeah, are going to yeah. somehow fix this problem. And again, it totally undermines that by having them do something hilariously stupid um this film just doesn't know where it's at half the time no no it's uh that that, that um that is one that, that does really bother me another another one and this comes up in a lot of movies not just the siege but it, one that i noticed really blatantly in this one that as the as the fbi swat team is making their way up that staircase that you just described after the loud conversation that you know there's five or six agents in full swat gear and then you have hub and and frank pulling up the rear and they're wearing you know nice mono, uh, monographed fbi vests and holding their pistols but they give the impression like they're there to come kind of back the swat team up and uh that's that's not what what really happens in real life you know the SWAT team is the SWAT team they have their members and they you know use them however if there's something that needs to get changed that's one thing but you know the the boss coming in at the end of the trail at the end of the the stack of guys about to kick in the door yeah that doesn't happen in real life the boss stays outside until it's safe and mm -hmm. then once it's safe then they go in and deal with what whatever's going on um i did want to mention one real quick thing about the judge while i was thinking about it the other thing about their failure to include those those cutscenes with him, it would have given another American official the open and welcome duty of saying that Muslim lives, Arab lives, Palestinian lives, Iraqi lives mean as much as ordinary Americans. Because that was very in the in the script part I read that was very much implied, and that's something that we don't see very often in movies and in other places in this movie they, they kind of gloss over that but if that had happened it would have been like wow this judge actually cares that these cops you know that they're if they're going after americans they're going after americans it doesn't matter what they look like doesn't matter who they pray to it these people's lives have have meaning and by not including that that was another way that they could have solidified that uh, that line Sure, sure. It's another way of presenting the, the Muslim characters in this movie, pretty much yeah. all of whom are terrorists. Yes, um, pretty, pretty much. As, yeah. as the, this kind of alien other thing that's somehow invaded America, that's somehow, you know, here without being properly American and therefore shouldn't be subject to the same, you know, civil rights and the yeah. same legal protections and so on as the rest of us. There is very much an us and them mentality as this movie goes on, even though it kind of criticizes that, it still reinforces it in so many ways. And you're absolutely right. Having that section with the judge ripped out of there, that's the prime opportunity to actually have that conversation and actually make that point. Um, so, yes, that may also be one of the reasons why that was removed. Yeah, absolutely. So we move on to um, the theater bombing. Um, so the, 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 the just crew... before you get into that, can can we talk a little bit about the SWAT raid? Yeah, absolutely. Um, sure, go for it. Uh, firstly, um, I love how 
the character playing low rent Mark Rossini in this film is the same guy who plays Richie Aprile in The Sopranos a few years <laughs> later. Because <laughs> um, the notion of him working for the FBI just makes me laugh. Um, I loved the thing with the pizza box and the no contact pizza delivery. Those, those terrorists were very much ahead of their time in that respect. Um, but just the sheer notion of the way we're going to storm this apartment where a bunch of terrorists who have already carried out one massively lethal bombing and therefore probably have detonators and explosive and what have you lying around in the apartment. Yeah. The way we're going to get in there is by putting a grenade in a pizza box. <laughs> um, and then run in and just shoot everything. Yeah, right. exactly. Yep. That's, that's, it, that's all it is, yeah. Like, I'm amazed they didn't all just blow themselves up. Frankly, I'm amazed anyone came out of that room alive. <laughs> well, and like they just go in there, they just basically start shooting. And also, to the two guys who were in the front of the stack, you see them later working with the task force as like regular agents. And so I'm like, that's that's also another weird thing that would never happen. But okay. Mm. Yeah, the the uh, the lack of injuries from the FBI agents was was really seemed really suspicious to me. You had at least two of the guys in the apartment had AKs, meaning mm -hmm. that their their rounds could potentially penetrate whatever armor the, the FBI guys were wearing. Yep. I don't think that you kick in the door like you mentioned about you know of, of three terrorists who, if they had blown themselves up, would have been entirely on point for this kind of situation but they didn't blow themselves up the fbi walked into a hail of nasty gunfire which somebody should have come away with with at least a scratch of some kind and they didn't all the fbi guys were 100 percent um with the three terrorist guys being dead and so you know it, it really it really ties that up way too succinctly as just a good action scene over well, I don't know about good action and action scene, over mm -hmm. anything else that could be more realistic. You know, it, it would it would have made more sense, and I I know this would be horrific to see, but like somebody standing out on the street, you know, an FBI agent securing the perimeter or something, and all of a sudden that whole corner of the building blows up, like their apartment, and it's just all cut out from right there. That would have made some kind of sense, especially in the way that in the abilities that these terrorists have shown. But instead, we get this very tight and neat little SWAT scene with nobody getting hurt, except for the three terrorists. Who oh, yeah, conveniently three dead terrorists. Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> there got to be dead terrorists. You know, <laughs> it's it's just part of what we do. Um, well, and wouldn't you do something like? I mean. I don't work for an intelligence or a law enforcement agency, but the way I would approach something like that is wait for one of the guys to leave the apartment so that you can then grab him up. So you've at least got one person exactly. to interrogate after yeah. this. Exactly. To, you know, like they should maybe... have nabbed one person and just, and then like, and then if they had to take the other ones, but like, fuck. Yeah. It's just so stupid. It's like they came there to get information because they suspected that that's where they were. And so, yeah, they've got physical evidence and they've got the bombs and stuff, but like having somebody who can then talk, link everything together, like that would have been priority number one. Mm -hmm. So it's just fucking stupid that they just were like, oh, we killed everyone. Okay, bye, whatever. And then, and then also there's the, the terrorist uh, 
little piggy, you know, bomb, bomb making bank that they have there of, of stuff. And so, it, you know, it'd be between, between that and the rest of the scene, it really gives this immediate but false sense of completion. And so, and then they go, they go out, the agents go out and, and celebrate. They, it, it seems very much that they have done what they needed to do. Um, and then in the course of them being out, they all get paged and they find out that a theater um, somewhere, I, I want to say it was somewhere in Manhattan, but I'm, I'm not sure about the specific borough. Um, it, but, it looks like Broadway, like they're in Times Square. Yeah, yeah, stuff, it, look, so. it looks like it's, it's, it's definitely up there in, in, in upscale Manhattan. Um, and that had the most graphic part of the movie in my view. Um, which was there was a lady who was walking down the stairs and she turns in the camera and you see that she has a severed arm and she's holding that severed arm with her other hand. Um, that is the most specifically specific bomb related violence that we see. So I thought about that with the earlier bus bombing and it's like, you know, if this was a, a legitimate terrorist bombing of a bus full of innocent people, there would be body parts. Yeah, everywhere. On, on the street, on the walls, on the everything. And again, you know, American movies and well, I mean, I mean movies period, we can't usually show such uh, explicit violence, but that is the reality we'd be looking at. And this this woman walking down the stairs, I think was the closest that they actually came to it by by showing that. I mean, it was it was just her holding an arm. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't particularly graphic and like there were tendons or ligaments hanging out or anything like that, but it was it was the biggest statement they made in terms of of uh, of the violence. Um and it comes immediately after possibly the dumbest moment in the entire movie when a whole team of FBI agents drunk drive at high speed through a crowded city. They do. I forgot right. about that. You mentioned that. <laughs> to, to, yeah. Towards a bomb site. Yep. What could go wrong? Yeah. And, and that's... You know, because Elise was like, oh, I'm, I'm wasted. And then they go to the fucking scene and I'm like, oh yep. yeah, this is so great. <laughs> Yeah, we've now got a drunken CIA officer who's sleeping with a terrorist running around our bomb scene. Right, right. No, no, that was that was awful. I, at the very least, you could see them being drunk in a cab, and they're like, mm. they pay the cabbie extra money, go faster, go faster, go faster. But to drive there themselves, that's <laughs> something, you know. But again, because of the nature of the movie, it's immediately forgotten. Because now we have this theater blow-up scene and everything that just came before, you know, the, the semi-normalcy we return to getting drunk after the big, the big bust, um, it just totally shifts back to that without explaining very much how it shifted back to that. Um, so then we move on. There's a, uh, a briefing that Hub gives to a bunch of other law enforcement agencies. They, uh, there's a, a, a gentleman there who says he works for the Arab Anti-Defamation League, that he, um, and he, and I, I thought that was actually a good inclusion that they, um, his mentioning that the, the Arab community of New York City stands with them, stands with law enforcement. They do decry this horrible violence. I'm paraphrasing, but that was essentially, you know, what, what, what he said there. And so, and then after he gets done, Hub kind of gets into this, you know, rah-rah kind of speech. He mentions about uh, a bombing in Tel Aviv, um, which was, if I'm, if I got the timeline right, uh, was the, uh, Dizengoff Street bus bombing. It was a Hamas suicide attack on a passenger bus in Tel Aviv in 1994. 
um, 22 civilians were killed and, and 50 were injured. Um, but he, he mentions that, you know, that, that the day after Tel Aviv, the market was open and it was full. And it's like, what the hell is that supposed to mean exactly? That people have to go on even if other people they knew or live close to just got blown up yeah that's reality that's that's what it is so making it seem like wow all of these these people just went on with their lives no problem bomb we just keep on keep on trucking um he, he even mentions towards the very end this is new york city we can take it you know we're putting we're putting John McClane credentials on all of New York City now. They can take it. They can handle the blow, the big booms and everything. So then they move on to, um, which was the next thing? Was it one federal plaza or was it the thing with the kids at the school? The school, the school, the kids in the, uh, the yeah, the terrorist guy holding the kids hostage. So we have a... Uh, we have a more traditional hostage negotiation type scene. Um, Hub and Frank and a couple of other FBI agents are just beyond a set of barricades that whoever's inside had, had set up. And they're using, um, trying to think of the term, the, the, the flex cameras, the little... Um, the, the Yeah, those cameras that go around corners, whatever. Yeah, yeah, little right snake, now. the snake ones, the ones that they, they use to see different things. And... Um, Elise is there with them as well. And at one point without really, I, I don't remember there being any dialogue between the characters right now, the news helicopters show up again. And Elise just kind of looks forlornly at Hub and you know, the, it's all subtext. There's no specifics here at all. And Hub decides, and I, I mean this entirely without jest, he goes freaking John McClane. He runs down yeah. the subway, he busts open the double doors with his shoulder. He does a combat roll, and then he shoots this one terrorist, which I know that but the scene immediately before that, they weren't sure how many of them there were yet. They knew there was one they could see, but there could have been more in places they couldn't have seen. So he was actively doing that into a place where they didn't have all the information yet anyway, right. regardless if they could do anything about it. But he does, does his nice little combat roll, puts three rounds center mass, on the terrorist and down he goes. Uh, no mention of how dumb it was. No mention of the idea that that guy could have had a had a um, uh, what do they call the the uh, dead, a dead man trigger. Yeah, dead um, man trigger. You know, and again, that could have easily been another crater department on the side of a building. Um, but thanks to his good, you know, his his John McClane ness, <laughs> um, you know, that didn't happen. But again, there's no explanation, no understanding of, you know, why it was that that had to be done at that exact moment, and the immense danger that he put everyone in doing that. Definitely my least favorite scene in the movie. Just the most like outrageous, ridiculous. So we gotta go save those kids right now, like. Yep nothing yep. else matters and it's just like fucking bullshit like yeah all those things you just said there's no nobody knows the entire situation they don't know how many people there are no nope, yeah nope. Ugh, it's just so like oh let me just go in and do the action hero thing not like we haven't seen that enough in this movie <laughs> right right also it, again it undermines thematically speaking it undermines what this movie appears to be trying to say which is that the diplomatic negotiating law enforcement approach to terrorism is better than the militarized approach um 
that's sort of supposed to be the whole lesson of the conflict in the second half of the movie between General John McClane and Denzel Washington. Yet here, we see him doing the exact opposite. He is supposed to be the intelligent one. He is supposed to be the careful, patient one who's, you know, going to think this through and try and find a way to resolve this peacefully. And yet he's the one we see, like you say, cartwheeling down a fucking corridor before shooting a terrorist. And again, of course, no Muslims said anything of any significance in this part of the movie. They're not given a voice. We don't know why this guy is doing this. We don't, we don't even know if he's part of the same terrorist cells that did the other things. Yeah, no, we're, we're completely, completely in the dark. All right, so we, we then move on to this council-type scene with a whole bunch of federal, federal and state officials sitting around this giant round table discussing what is happening in, uh, in New York City. And... that the um they're trying to have some kind of consensus for the president that I, I don't know if he's coming to new york coming back to washington but they're trying to figure out what it is they're going to do because at this moment they've they've finally arrived at their their breaking point that this is too much and now now they have to to push for for uh, military action um and so and and uh, Devereaux gives a whole speech here, which I'm going to read, and then we can make fun of it because it's awful. Um, but just prior to them doing that, they did a really quick flash cut out of that scene, and it shows water being poured over hands in a ritualized manner. And on the speaker, we hear the, the sound of chanting. This is one of those inclusions in terms of trying to make it seem like it's about Muslim people without anybody in the movie actually saying it's about Muslim people. Um, you know, just these little little spots in there. And so the chief of staff, the one that's going to be reporting the president, asked Devereaux what it would look like in terms of them uh, bringing in the army. And Devereaux says, quote, 12 hours after the president gives the word, we can be on the ground. One light infantry division of 10,700 men. Elements of the rapid deployment force combined with special forces, APCs, tanks, helicopters, and of course, the ubiquitous M16A1 assault rifle. A humble weapon until you see a man carrying one outside your local bowling alley or 7-Eleven. It will be noisy, it will be scary, and it will not be mistaken for a VFW parade. And then, at the, right at the end of that line, they go back to another anonymous thing. Uh, anonymous hands lifting a, a cotton shroud. Um, and then here's something that wasn't included in the movie. Devereaux says, that means civilian casualties. At a minimum, it's a drunk private joyriding in a Hummer who runs down an old lady in Greenport. At a maximum, and then he trails off. And then he says, make no mistake, we will hunt the enemy, we will find the enemy, and we will kill the enemy. And no card-carrying member of the ACLU is more dead set against it than I am, which is why I urge you, no, I implore you, do not consider this option. Now, number one, no general is going to be a member of the ACLU. In any country, in any place, none of them. It did... It, it, <laughs> Their existence as a general, it, it, it just it would make absolutely no sense. Um, also, I felt like he was kind of egging them on here. 
like he was kind of saying you you don't want this you don't want this i'm telling you you don't want this and everyone else in the room is like yeah we we kind of want this even after you saying all your all your scary things um well because what's the next line the the national security advisor is like that's why you're the best person for this job yeah and 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 that's the thing is that that the you know generals can be remarkably pc when they when they want to be um depending on the situation now there's a another line that comes up just a little bit later they're still in this council room and a different general i'm assuming the army chief of staff or somebody else high up in that he says i remind you general Devereux does not speak for official army policy a police function has become accepted as our role in haiti in somalia um yeah, Haiti and Somalia are are destroyed. We 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 yeah we we didn't do anything good there whatsoever. I'm calling it a <laughs> yeah, that, that didn't work out well for Haiti no, and Somalia. No, it did not work out well for Haitians or or the Somalis in in the least. Um, but it kind of gave you know a, there's a little bit of PC cover there in terms of okay he's a little overzealous. That's not official army policy, but he still gets the job. He's still the guy that they send there. That doesn't tell the general. It's like, wow, this dude is really going to, you know, do horribly here. I don't know that we want to uh, have him actually do it. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Lorenz, Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Why I Am Anti-War, Kenneth Cordasco, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Well, this goes back to what you were saying about what was cut out of that opening scene where they capture the shake. Mm-hmm. Um, if, when I first watched this film, I, I was confused as to whether... Is the general genu- genuinely opposed to this policy... Or is this whole spiel he gives at the council a bunch of reverse psychology to ensure he gets the job and they adopt this policy? Because you have that whole thing about, you know, if we're going to do this, we want someone who doesn't really want to do it 
to actually yeah. implement it because then it won't yeah. go overboard and it won't start you know unnecessarily infringing on people's liberties and so on and so forth but he then goes like when he actually gets to implement this he goes full colonel kurtz and starts yeah. fucking locking everyone up and killing people doing whatever the hell he likes he, he just, yeah, yeah. just reveals himself to be a psychopath um so i was kind of left wondering are they trying to say it's because he was thrust into this impossible situation that he went crazy or are they trying to say this was his plan all along and it seems from the early script that you've read henry they were trying to say this was his plan all along and he's right. that way yeah you know and and that this is false opposition to the policy and he's just saying that so he comes across as the sort of guy that you would put in charge of it because he's not going to you know go overboard with it yeah um but because they don't really set that up earlier in the film at this point, I was just kind of deeply confused with what does this guy actually believe and what is he even trying to do here? Um, yeah, it's another one of those places where they seemed to be trying to do something quite high concept, but miserably failed in the execution on, yeah. on the one hand. And also these changes to the script meant it was just much less clear what the hell they were even trying to say. Yeah, there's another there's another cut from this scene just a little bit uh, later with with Hub because they the chief of staff um, asks him you know if there's anything he wants to add if there's um, what does he think that they need to do and Hub says quote nothing don't overreact with all respect gentlemen I'm just a cop to you these people may be martyrs but to me they're criminals and a criminal is no better than somebody who thinks he's better than everyone else. And he's not better. He only has to be wrong once. And that's where we come in. We run down a tip from a landlord or we pick up a latent print from a bus. Our phones are ringing off the hook with people from the Arab community wanting to help. Um, and uh, they love this country and they hate these, the, these criminals are giving them a bad name. With some help and some old-fashioned shoe letter, we'll nail these guys. Um, and that whole line in there um was was taken out uh hub, hub ends up saying something about the the job of the fbi is to respond and the job of the army is to defend to defend with their presence in the city it would make make it really really hard for them to continue investigating and you get to see that through the through the movie um but again th this guy's an army veteran he understands what it means in terms of the firepower and and violence that a military unit would bring alongside but it's not that's not given any credence here he's not he's not the general with the with the great speech it sucks that they took out so many of the things that would have humanized the arab community and like given a real persona to like empathize with and instead that's all just taken out yeah it, it, it really is it's it it, it and, and there's and there's more coming. I I, uh, I I found a whole bunch of them. So, <laughs> well, and the line in that little bit of dialogue in particular, where he's saying that you know we've got people providing us information from from this community because yeah. they want us to find these people yeah, and yeah. Then take them off the streets. And of course, you know it's far easier to invade the Arab community if you can pretend like they're not doing anything to help. Yeah. Um, whether that be in you know Brooklyn or Iraq. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then uh, they reintroduce uh, Elise, who Elise's name is now Sharon, and Sharon was doing covert work during the Gulf War in Iraq. 
Um, she explains that the, the terrorist cells have no central leadership, that if you cut off the head, another just rises in its place, um, which they don't, you know, they talk about that technique, that idea of terrorist cells, but they don't point to any specific examples or, or something else that somebody could credibly look at and say, okay, that kind of makes, makes sense. It's not that she's wrong, but again, I'd like a little evidence with my evidence and that this, this doesn't, doesn't really have any. Um, it's then they find out that one federal plaza, the immense federal office building in downtown Manhattan, where their main offices got bombed. Um, and they, I believe they mentioned that they had over 600 casualties and they, the agents, you know, Frank and Hub both mentioned about all the people, you know, this person and this person that they were in there working when it left. It just happened to be that the guys who were out doing interviews or, other other stuff hub and hub and frank being at this this big meeting that it saved them that everybody else would have been would have been bombed and, and dead um so next thing so then uh, hub gets after sharon he's very very pissed that he doesn't hasn't gotten all this information that he should have had earlier if she's really supposed to be some kind of cia liaison that should have been sharing that stuff. And he actually threatens to leak that stuff to the New York Times if he feels like Sharon is, is withholding. Um, then, they, then they pull a president as presidential by using violence. It was just before Devereux actually takes the unit into New York that uh, the chief of staff tells him, I'm telling you, the president is prepared to be presidential. Well, presidential usually means violence inflicted on somebody a long ways away. That, right. I mean, there, there's yeah. no, there's nothing more to it than that. It's it's a it's a bully a bully yard thing just written written nicer. Um, they also mentioned that the War Powers Act gave Devereux the clearance to enter New York City. Um, the War Powers Act no. doesn't have anything to do with that. Exactly. Like, at all. I mean nothing. It has, it's it's a it's a method for Congress to rein back in uh, an unruly military operation in the event that they have enough votes, which they usually don't. I think that the recent one that they did about Yemen that was during when while Trump was still in office is the only time that a War Powers Act resolution has ever passed either House of Congress. But they just throw it in there like, oh, people will know about that. And it, yeah, it has nothing to freaking do with it. Um, and then we come to the military. They're sealing off Brooklyn, um, that anyone fitting their particular profile that they mentioned very specifically will be arrested and detained. Um, the profile was, I think it was uh, Muslim boys and men age 15 to 40 something like that. It was a pretty, a pretty good swath. And then they only, they only fitted it down to Brooklyn. So it was, I think when they say they came down to, it was like 4,500 people hiding among a population of however many tens of thousands. It was two, yeah, he says 2,000 in a population of 2 million because it's all the people who came in the country in the last six months. Oh, that's so that it. Also yeah, I forgot, I forgot about that part. So he, he's essentially, you know, we're, we're, it's broadsword time. You know, we're, we're, we're here to, to do it. And so they set up the stadium and they start putting all of these people that they captured that fit this profile into the stadium to include Frank's son. Frank has a, I think a 14 or 15 year old son who ends up getting picked up. And 
um, Hub actually goes to the stadium and finds Frank, and Frank is beyond livid. And he discusses how he feels very, very betrayed. You know, that, that how, how many years had he lived in the U.S.? How many years had he worked for the Bureau? You know, the things that he had sacrificed and given up, and yet here's my son in this fucking stadium. Um, yeah, he was, he was I, and I would, as a father, I would be beyond livid too. Um, so they, uh, Hub goes to Devereaux about the kid, and De- Devereaux accuses him of questioning his patriotism. And, and again, we have another essentially show-stopping moment. It's not. It's not about anything that actually happens. It was enough that he said, "You're questioning my patriotism." So oh, he's a general. I I won't question his patriotism. Um, they then uh, capture another dude named Tariq Husseini, who I believe was was where was he from? Um, It might have been the West Bank. I can't remember at the moment. So, um, but when they go to pick Tariq Husseini up, because he's the, the FBI goes to pick him up because he's the next step in their investigation. And at the same time, the army raids it. They blow up most of the building, if not the entire building. Everyone else that was in there working to include a couple FBI agents died. And only yeah. Hub and the suspect or the, the guy Tariq Husseini, they're the only ones that survived that. Um, oh, I missed one line earlier that I think was really important for Frank at the stadium. I jumped the stadium a little bit. It actually comes after this, but he tells them, I'm not their sand nigger anymore. And sand nigger being a awful term that troops did use overseas in terms of calling the, the local population. It's like calling people hajis. But it, it makes a very specific thing here that Frank knew that he, you know, he's an American. He's on the side of the Americans. Now he's not their, their rube anymore, not their, their useful idiot anymore, if we want to look at it that way. Mm. Then we move on to torture time. So Elise tries to interrogate the guy, the guy, uh, Tariq. He spits in her face. Um, which also could be another male-female interaction in terms of a, a, a woman speaking with authority to a man. Um, right. I mean, it's just, just a, yeah, I, I don't know that that's what it was, but it really seemed like that's what they were trying to get to. Um, so Sharon says, okay, I can't get any more. What do we do now? And Devereaux starts going through a list of different types of torture. They mention waterboarding. They mention uh, electrocuting him. They mentioned uh, stress positions with combined with sleep deprivation. Um, and Hub just loses his mind right there. He's like, what, what, what is this? What the hell are you guys talking about? We can't do this. We can't, can't do that. Um, and, and he, I thought it was one of the really good points left in um, that, you know, if you torture him, General, all that we have bled and fought and died for is over. You know, if we're really buying into the American mythos that our freedoms were only won by the hard work of the military um, and asking them to do something this abhorrent. And so he, he is. He's, he's just beside himself. They end up kicking him out of the room. He stands in the hallway. One other thing he says as well that really but, struck with me was, what if they don't even want the shake? What if this is what they want? This, the, yes. the troops in the streets and people afraid in their homes 
and like torture. It's like like that's the fucking shit. Like yeah, that yeah. is the point. Yeah. That is the point of terrorism. No, that I forgot about that one. That was another another really good one. Um, and and you see there that that was a real moment of him identifying with the humanity of these people that are under attack. Is like, are you? We can't do this. You know, it was just so effed up to him the idea that it would it would have to happen under any circumstances um and so they kick him out of the room and he essentially listens to them torture Tariq and murder him in the room and he didn't know anything but that that didn't stop him from shooting him in the head when they were done which again like doesn't make any sense if your purpose is to try and get information why yeah, would no. you like torture someone for two seconds and then shoot them like yeah yeah exactly and and the thing about it about interrogations even non-physical interrogations is something i used to do when i was on the drug team they can take hours hours of you talking to someone sometimes you're spending time shooting the shit because you're trying to establish rapport but it, it's not it's not always this aggressive law and order face of did you do this whole thing because people don't want to talk when you talk to them that way they need to, you have to, they have to develop some kind of rapport or you ain't learning shit. Mm -hmm. um, well, they've got to feel that it's safe, that they can give you the information that they ultimately don't really want to give you. Yes. But yes. you've got to make them feel safe in giving that up. Otherwise, like you say, you're not really going to get anything out of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, this is one of those wonderful moments in this film where probably the best piece of dialogue, the most intelligent piece of dialogue, and most true piece of dialogue in the whole movie mm -hmm. um, about maybe this is actually the whole purpose of the terrorism is to make us start terrorizing ourselves um, is followed by something outrageously dumb, where like you say from the sound, I mean we only hear the sound of the torture because we're out in the, in the corridor with Hub um, is it's just basically sort of sounds like he sticks a knife in him and twists it for a couple of seconds and then shoots him. They don't even try to interrogate the guy. It's no, it's no. more it's more just a murder than a you know a torture session. It's very strange. I guess they did that for dramatic effect. They're trying to show how you know the general's gone completely off the deep end and it's just sort of descended into insanity. But yeah. Just poor execution again. Fair. Even even torture takes quite a long time. Um, yeah, yeah, no, and and Elise even mentions, you know, that they were when they were discussing different methods of torture that doing the sleep deprivation one takes at least thirty six hours. That they're they're in any kind of interrogation or or torture is that there's there's all these establishing things that need to be done to make it seem a certain way. They uh, this the spooks that were working at Abu Ghraib that they would they would talk the guards there into helping them prep a prisoner. I don't know that they use that word prep, but the, um, you know, messing with their, messing with their circadian rhythms, forcing them to, to lay in, in nasty positions, things that are lesser forms of torture, but not something that is as easily proven by looking at someone. It's like, Oh, this dude, you know, he got nailed at the damn wall. Mm -hmm, um, yeah. but they were definitely in line with that. Um, so then we move on to the um, hub meeting with the chief of staff, the guy who was in charge of the big meeting with all of the generals. And he gives him an accordion file and the uh, existing movie dialogue doesn't really specify about what is actually in the accordion file. 
it's just they just give it to them it's just a big old file of, of stuff um and then they talk a little bit about uh, about the Sheik, and this is all stuff that wasn't included in the movie from uh, from the chief of staff. Now we just can't let him go. America has to stand tall in the world, yada yada yada. So what we do is we let the American justice system do its work. And Hub's like, "What do you mean, let the justice system do its work?" And the chief of staff says, "We don't release him. A judge releases him. You're an FBI man. That's what judges are good at, right? It's not." Like we're, we're, we've gone after him in proper prosecutorial fashion, kidnapping him, holding him in isolation, fruit of the poison of the poison tree. Remember that one from law school? Oh well, we'll have a big trial. Everybody will get their rocks off. But the fact is, the sheik will walk. Um. And the uh, last last comment he makes, and this whole episode becomes nothing more than the news cycle before the next news cycle. Um. This whole section wasn't in there at all. So there's no discussion about the Sheik, about exactly where he is in the system, because this is the first, um, other than Devereaux scenes that don't include anybody else, this is the first admission outside of that that the U.S. government knows about this guy, knows he's in custody, knows they can't charge him, knows that he will walk, but they still have him. But at least here they actually acknowledge it. They acknowledge that that was the reality. Hmm. I mean, I assumed watching this film that the Sheik character is uh, based on the blind Sheik, Omar Abdel Rahman, the guy who was, I guess, in some ways, ultimately behind the World Trade Center bombing in 93. Hmm. Um, because there was a whole thing in the late 1990s where Al-Qaeda were trying to get him released from prison. I mean, he was in a you know super maximum security prison. What was um, his... Uh, where was he from? Egypt. He's from Egypt. Yeah, Egypt uh, isn't mentioned in this movie at all. No, no, no. But I can only assume it's at least somewhat based on that. I mean, we are talking it's, about... It sounds, you know, it sounds right. Yeah, yeah. You know, a string of terrorist attacks in New York that are all, it seems, ultimately in some way inspired by this terrorist mastermind, although we never actually see him do anything. No. All, no. all he really does in the film is get captured. And we don't even see him meet with his own followers. No, no. Um, so again, it's pretty hazy and unclear, like so many things in this script, but I always thought that's what they were playing on, was that attempt that Al-Qaeda were making in the late 90s to, to get the blind Sheikh released from prison. Um, and that that's why. But there again, you don't... That doesn't make any sense. You don't start running around bombing theatres and things to demand someone's release. You might take some hostages or hijack a plane and demand yeah, yeah. that someone be released because then you've got a negotiation, you've got an exchange, you get the plane back and everyone's safe and we get the guy out of prison. Just simply bombing a bunch of stuff isn't going to get it done. No. Um, so the rationale there doesn't really add up and yeah taking out that sequence it basically leaves it like fairly ambivalent even at the end of the movie who was this person that they captured and what was his connection with this subsequent terrorist campaign was there even a connection at all yeah um did did anyone at any point in this entire story actually understand what the hell was going on or why um and I mean that both in terms of people watching this film and the characters in this film. Um, 
because there's some real problems there and and all of these edits that you're telling me about um made the film worse not just politically worse um but also just make less sense as a movie yeah the 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 narrative was really shifted um and there's just so many more holes in it and so many more problems with the character arcs and things as a result. It sounds like it was a much more sort of intelligence and I don't want to use the word balanced, but uh, sophisticated it, movie it, to begin with. Um, and it became considerably simplified. And as a result, they cut out anything that was sort of complicated or subtle. And, okay. and the result is a movie with no complexity or subtlety. Well, the last the last half just seems it's like the terrorism thing like takes a back seat to like mm. Hub and the generals fight. Yeah, it, yeah. You know, like, figure out what the problem is, and I mean, yes, like it is important to explore like what are the ramifications of martial law, like what would that look like, you know, what are the steps it would take, but it it definitely muddies the plot as far as like what the original intention of the movie was. Well, and I think really muddies the messaging because the second half of the movie is supposed to be, uh, I mean, the, the conflict between those two characters is a metaphor for the conflict between the two approaches to counter terrorism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're presumably supposed to come down on Hub's side and believe that the whole, you know, diplomatic or, or law enforcement approach is much better but yeah, I came away from the f- film thinking, ultimately what it's saying is it doesn't matter which approach we take as long as we get the damn terrorists. Yeah. yeah. Especially when you're taking historical context into interview. And like, I just, I couldn't help but do that every, every step of this movie because you, that's just the whole thing. Like every, everything that we did, like everything that he said in that beautiful speech about like, you know, when they're going to terrorize the guy. And it just makes me sad because we ended up going with that method. We ended up torturing lots of people. And it just like, fuck, like none of this means anything because we ended up going up with that terrible way of doing things anyway. Yeah, the, uh, it, it really, the, 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 any, any of the goodwill that, that, it seems that it would have had it just gets so muddied and, and vapid over any 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 sense of of reality um and as like you said Kay, that he uh you know that once the army comes in now hub has to that's essentially all he does for the remainder of the movie is deal with Devereaux and the army in one way or another it's not him back in his office or back in his apartment because his office got blown up trying to figure out what the next move is trying to figure out what what they're going to do um, and so the, the, the next section I want to talk about, and there was, there was some definite changes in here that you guys are going to be interested in. So Elise and Hub are sitting in Hub's Crown Vic and they're, uh, she's, you know, kind of spilling all of her beans to him about what was really going on. Um, and so the, the, the first line of dialogue, which was one that wasn't included, um, she says it was going to be beautiful referring to her her mission and then there was a policy policy shift the new doctrine was iran will be too powerful if iraq falls apart and then we move into a line that was left in the movie and it's not like we sold them out exactly we just stopped helping them 
and I wasn't allowed to tell them what was coming down. I was ordered not to tell them, and they got slaughtered. And then uh, this back to another piece that was was entirely kept out of the movie. You've got to understand, these people believe paradise, bliss. To us, they're just words, but to them, it's very beautiful, actually. And when you look at the lot, their lives, the, the heartbreak, and what do we do? We think we can take advantage of that. And so, and then she says that I, so I quit, I came home, I just can't do it anymore. Um, and they, uh, hub, hub kind of, they want one line, uh, some lines that I'm really glad they left in there is that she mentions about, you know, she's trying to save them because of the, the Gulf War to get them out in time. Um, and she gets them visas, but she leaves out that she taught them how to make bombs. And Hub just says that, said, you taught them, you taught them how to do it. And now here they are doing exactly what you taught them to do. And the, the last one, and I, 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 it, it depends on, on where you're at watching the movies, uh, going through its narrative. But she mentions to him that the most committed wins. That's a phrase that you can so take wrong in so many different ways, depending on mm -hmm. what the situation is. Um, and she was mentioning about that, you know, the, the most committed to whatever it happens to be or the people that win. Well, that's not true. It, I mean, America, quote unquote, wins all the time. But in terms of our, our commitment just to that idea, it, it, you know, it can, it can wax and wane a good bit. Um, did you guys want to comment on that section with Elise? It's, it's definitely like a culture war statement, you mm. know, of like the most committed. It's like, oh, we have to be committed if we want to defeat terrorism, not um, maybe just stop killing people and actually try to help better their lives. You know, like, uh, I, I, I like that part the way they do show. It's like, look, like this is another example of chickens coming home to roost. Mm -hmm. Like we we decided to give people the means and resources to accomplish a goal that we wanted, and then when you know when it doesn't matter anymore, or when the objectives change from the American perspective, it's just you know it's just fuck it, whatever. And it, I don't know like I don't know how people who do that job do that job because. The friends of mine that I know that have done humans, like done the human intelligence where you're developing assets and stuff, it's, it just sounds insane to me to like, you have to be so buddy-buddy with people. You know, you have to develop that rapport, that friendship, promise them all these things. And then the minute that they stop being an asset or the minute that they, you know, that there is some kind of potential for exposure of your assets, they just get cut loose and you have to go in there and pretend like you don't even fucking know them. And I just, I can't even imagine like how the fuck does somebody do that job where you have to like lie to people and promise them all these things. And then if that no longer aligns with the goals of what you're trying to do there, you have to just cut ties and just, oh, it's just so gross that like they, I'm glad that they brought that up, but yeah, it's like, I wish they would have explored that more of, you know, the whole reason that this is happening, it's sad because Elise takes it on herself and feels like, oh, it's my fault. But it's not her fault. It's the fucking CIA's fault. It's yeah. the, the foreign policy objectives 
And the way that we go about doing this, that's the fucking problem. But they don't want to talk about that in the movie. But it, it, it seems like that, that Elise here is trying to pull in as much blame as she can onto her plate. So that yeah. it seems a little bit like the, the CIA less so more Sharon's fault, you know, and, and that can be part of the cutting off, too. Because if somebody does does make a mistake or does something that we're we're not in line with, they can lose their job working for Spooks in the, in the same way. Um, but well, it it's is... the same thing with Devereaux too. It's like you want to put in and all these things that he's doing. It's like, oh, he's just a guy with too much power that's gone off the rails. And it's yeah, like, yeah, no, exactly. like, it's it's not the he army. Is it's following not the procedure. Government. Yeah, yeah. He's he's doing exactly what we've trained a general to do, which is to fight. Again, I think this part of the story where it's kind of revealed that these terrorists are essentially our terrorists, yep. um, or at least were in the past, um, and that this was some sort of, you know, destabilized the Iraqi government through terrorism thing, which is kind of ironic given that following the invasion of Iraq, that right. was actually a policy that was adopted vis-a-vis -vis Iran, um, is actually to you know, train and fund and encourage terrorists to try and destabilize the Iranian government. But it hasn't really worked because in, in a lot of assessments, Iran was actually been probably the main beneficiary of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, that they Absolutely. their position is in, in a lot of ways actually strengthened by those yep. wars, um, pro mostly because those wars have gone so horribly wrong. But, you know, it could have gone differently, I guess, in theory. <laughs> um, but That's like, interesting, yeah, the Iran it, part that they cut out yeah i was i was really surprised mm. to see that somebody actually wrote that the fact that it didn't get filmed makes perfect sense but the and this was written by written by um is it lawrence tribe lawrence wright the guy right. who wrote the lawrence Tower. Wright. yeah 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 oh, and yeah. and the writing in it is real good and you can see kind of his things in here his his little little additions to stuff and, and um <laughs> So I think the, all the good parts of the script are right. that came from Lawrence Wright, to be honest. <laughs> that's right, that's right. That's right. Um, um, the so nuance. Th then we get into yeah. the, the final 15, 20 minutes of the movie. Um, there's a scene with Devereaux standing behind his men as, and I, I wrote just surveying the chaos. He's standing in the back with his beret on, just kind of watching things, and there's several lines of troops, people on a PA yelling, people need to disperse, and I was, again, I was thinking to myself, the bosses don't come. The bosses, they don't come. This should have been just a bunch of soldiers. Maybe there was some tight-ass lieutenant colonel who was out or specifically watching his unit for some reason, but a, a two-star general is not going to stand in the back of a formation that are doing riot ops, essentially. It makes absolutely no sense. So in that scene, there was uh, a couple different things that weren't included that were in the original script. The main one that I want to point out is that in between... Um, one of the comments where a lieutenant on a bullhorn is saying, you know, this unlawful gathering, you must disperse. The script says it cuts to either pictures or very short film segments of soldiers in full riot gear in Selma, Alabama in 1963, in Chicago in 1968, and in Los Angeles in 1993. Oh. Uh, the first, the first two, of course, it dealt with the civil rights era, and the third was the the, the Watts riots that happened in in '93, um, and so they made the 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 
it's very clear that Lawrence wanted to draw those lines here and say, do you not realize that these are our continuing chickens coming home to roost in terms of military policy being used and, and taking soldiers out on the street, that it actually has happened in our lifetimes or in the lifetimes of our parents and that we re should really know it. But it was, to me, it was a wonderful inclusion in terms of us trying to understand that we've seen this before and we will see it again. The fact that it seems movie over the top doesn't mean that it's not reality. Um, and then they, uh, the protesters are, are, you know, yelling on bullhorns as well. One of them yells out to join together, join hands. And then it says that a young girl unselfconsciously approaches a young soldier he looked, she looks right into his eyes, smiles, and walks past. Another marcher walks right past the soldier who does nothing to stop, stop him. And soon they are all surging past the riot line. Like these soldiers said, I'm not going to do this. You know, at least one or two of them, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not stopping these people because I don't know how that's going to end in some, some way there. But none of that was included in the in the in part of the movie the only part was That's that you know point. just just to disperse and and you can see is this whole pile of these little scenes adding up to something that was much more self-conscious and politically honest than what we got we, you know tom you mentioned it we just ended up with this vapid anti-terrorism film that didn't really tell us anything where Wright really wanted things to be told he wanted to um to reinforce the the innocence of, of Arab Americans and to not demonize them as, as we went through this. But that's not what the ending script came up with. Well, and the, the choice of those three clips um, that you talk about, you've got people who were protesting because they wanted civil rights. Mm -hmm. Well, they're, they're sympathetic and perfectly legitimate. Chicago in 68 was primarily about opposition to the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So again, yeah. sympathetic and very legitimate. And then in the early 90s in Los Angeles, they were essentially protesting against police brutality and racism. So, again, you know, you're, you're on the side of all of these protesters, right? Yeah, so you yeah. Should, you should be, um, to be honest. Yeah, and yeah. By stripping out that, it not only rips out the context of this is actually a trajectory that America has been on for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. This is actually a struggle that is already happening. Um, it also strips out the parallels of you know we should sympathize with these protesters because there is a history of mm -hmm. perfectly legitimate protesters protesting against something they have a right and you know should be opposed to um being in some way brutalized or violated or in some cases actually killed um i'm thinking kent state yeah in particular um by either the military the police or some combination of both and so yeah, that, that skews the values of that entire closing sequence. And also it means like, you know, it also means the plot doesn't work as well because the <laughs> kind of the twist is that they think there's another cell out there, mm -hmm. but it turns out there isn't. No. And that the, the so-called final cell is actually the terrorist that uh, Elise has been screwing throughout the whole movie like she's Carrie Matheson. Um, and that's supposed to be kind of the big twist and reveal at the end is that he's going to go and suicide bomb this protest and i was first left thinking they didn't really save the best till last did they because they've already blown up an entire federal building right this guy's going to go and kill what half a dozen protesters um it's not that big a deal 
I mean, it's obviously that would be very a bad thing to happen, but you know, in cinematic terms, yeah, they're not really yeah. building towards something here. Um, and because we don't really see much of these protesters, we don't particularly care about them. Their relevance to the plot is fairly minimal. Yeah, there isn't that sense of threat there. That no. this is something that should be protected. That we don't want this terror. I mean, by that point, I just didn't care whether the terrorists blew up the protest or not. Um, and yeah, so the plot kind of fails as well as stripping out all of the political and social and historical relevance. That was a really bad change. They really shouldn't have taken that out. That's that. Yeah, that's sad. I also like it. What 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 caught my eye as well was. The fact that, you know, when when initially when they had started the martial law and they were doing the clips of like people on the radio, it's like the you know people's opinion of what's going on. And there was people who were in support of it and people who weren't. But then, like when it comes to the protest time, it's like all of a sudden everybody's on the side of the protesters. And I was like, we know that that absolutely would not fucking happen. No. Mm. You know, like we would still have that dividing line of, the people who are afraid and think that the military is going to protect them versus the people who know that this is unlawful and uh, absolutely criminal. And it's just like, like reducing the, the like conflict into those kind of like, Oh, like, well, this is wrong. So of course Americans are against it. And it's like, we fucking know that that wouldn't be the case. Yeah. No, you'd get protests and counter protests and mutual recrimination and accusation and yeah, yeah, of course. And that could be it could also be another connection about the 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 literal protest, the the um Arab Americans issues with this is that you know show, showing them in it, it's not clear it doesn't it isn't clear what you know the way that that the movie is not clear how it feels about Arab Americans or American Muslims it, it jumps back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and so even even the places where it is good is still kind of shitty for that reason because we don't know you know what the what the real point is here so we move on to um uh, one of the final scenes of the movie where Samir takes Elise to this uh, bathhouse and they're supposedly waiting for the final, the leader of the final cell or the final cell to come there and meet them. And in the context of being in the bathhouse, Elise realizes that Samir is the final cell, that he's the last cell. But there were some really key differences between the original script and what we ended up seeing in the movie. In the script, Samir completely disrobes where in the movie he only ends up taking off his shirt. After he completely disrobes, he actually fully gets in the water and, and bathes himself as somebody would in this situation. And then he puts on a death shroud and then he puts civilian clothes over the top of it. But we don't see any of that context at all. Um, it's just that he takes off his shirt, he gets down really close to the water and washes his face and his hands. But that's, that's all, all that he does. Um, he also, in the script, he takes a lot longer to put the bomb on his body in terms of doing it. It actually shows, you know, that I'm putting literal explosives on myself. I'm taking some care in it, where in the movie, it's like he's putting on a backpack going back to college. You know, yeah. it's that th this giant ass bomb and you kind of throw it around like, you know, it's just your book bag. Um, and... 
um but in the original script where elise asked them why she's done this before she mentions the thing about the quran um he tells her very specifically i want you to bleed as we have bled and if they had included that it'd been like okay so he is here because of america's murderous involvement in the middle east in one way or another if we're wanted to look at that but without that context there you know it, it, it could be a terrorist for any reason you know 70 virgins you know and and that they're able to write that in much more concrete terms so people can understand it as opposed to it being you know scary mythical religious kind of talk that you know in terms of 70 virgins you know um they could make it make it much better there's um and then the last thing the last biggest changes that they made was that in the movie samir kills elise he's using elise as a as a human shield and he ends up shooting her in the back in the script hub shoots elise he actually shoots her um she there it, it creates creates some distance and then hub is trying at first he's trying to shoot the uh the detonator out of his hand you know the, the it really adds more practicality to this situation of a terrorist with a bomb on his chest with the human shield hmm. um and then there's still the same dying scene but he tells her or excuse me she tells him her real name is emma so there's a, a little bit of of you know, I'm going out the door. This is, you know, this is who I really am kind of thing. And it, it adds something more solid to her identity versus comparing to the, the two fake names that we've we've heard for her. And Hub actually asked her in the original script if she knew Samir was the final cell. And she says, I wondered. Like, that was always a possibility in the back of her mind, but she never shared it before now. So there's some real changes there that they really could nail in on the intelligence community's portion of this, you know, in in terms of culpability with uh, with mm. this whole scene. Um, and the last part of it is that the prayer she says at the end of the in the script is in Arabic. She gives what what I believe is a, a Muslim prayer, versus in the actual movie we have her reciting the Lord's prayer, a Christian prayer. Again, we have the, that 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 horrible dumbing down of Muslim belief, Muslim uh, religion, and and pushing it back to the the Christian side. Um, and the other part of that scene is that Frank, you know, dude from Lebanon, dude with you know this this is his culture. He's standing above Elise, crying, translating what she's saying for Hub, telling him. And so you see that you know that that interconnectivity there, but that whole scene just wastes all that shit mm. <laughs> that's so disappointing oh and the, and the last thing she says is Allah Akbar God is great you know and and you know Hub doesn't really do anything he doesn't you know help her recite the the Lord's Prayer there he just ends up saying amen but it, it so much is a stronger connection that could have made with with Arab Americans to you know that there that there were, were was is the occasional white person who attempts to understand who attempts to be there even in this contest is spook but still it's it, it yeah it's just gross yeah that that would have been so humanizing and so empathizing right. for everybody because I, like it it throws me off because I was like well 
her whole character is about being enmeshed in this culture, understanding it, like, you know, and so then why would she all of a sudden just like start reciting the fucking Lord's Prayer? <laughs> like, right, right. That doesn't make any sense. Well, and it would have meant that the movie, or at least, yeah, essentially, that the movie would have ended on a moment of empathy and mutual understanding. Mm-hmm. As right. Elise realizes it's because she lost her humanity due to this horrendous institution that she works for, that's why she's now dying. Yeah. That this isn't just blowback for America in general, this mm-hmm. is blowback for her personally. Right. Um, and that she tries to, you know, grab hold of her humanity and something sacred before she goes. That's good drama, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, e- oh, even leaving aside philosophy and thematics and what have you, that just would have been a better ending for the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And to have the three of them there, and they are essentially our three main characters in this yeah. story, yeah. having a moment together, a sad moment, but, you know, some kind of mutual understanding coming out of this. Thematically and philosophically, that's quite powerful. But instead, yeah. it just gets reduced to, oh, well, she's dead, but at least we got the fucking terrorist, so everything's all right, I guess. And, the, and there's also the, the reduction of Frank's character, that yeah. aside from him being at the stadium trying to find his son, which is something we can all relate to, here he is knowing that this, you know, that Elise did all these things, and he's still trying to maintain that connection for himself, that the... that. Um, you know that that's that's how he's tied in, and yeah, it, it would have made his character much more approachable and much less of a of a you know just kind of like you, you mentioned a Ali Sufan wannabe kind of person in terms of having a legitimate character of his own and following that arc to the end. Right. Um, they never even touched. They never even touched that after he goes through the whole thing. He throws his badge at a Hubbard, mm-hmm. and then it's just like all yep. of a sudden. They have a lead, and so now he's back on. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. I'm not. I, and that was the that was the. I'm not your sand. Tell them I'm not their sand nigger anymore. That was. And then you know, goes and that just was becomes... how pissed off he was at that moment. Right. Um, and then for it to just come back, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. So, last scene of the movie. Um, this is where Hubbard and his agents confront Devereaux and his and his staff. Um. And I got just a couple uh, script changes, but this this area is quite different too. So he asks Hubbard, "Do you want to tell me exactly what you you mean detaining Colonel Hardwick and six of my CID staff?" Here's the new the new line or the old line, whatever. Um, because this strikes me as a very peculiar idea of interagency liaison. And uh, Hub says, "Last cell was taken down. It was Samir." Um, Devereaux's like, what makes, uh, what makes you so sure? Hub says Sharon. Devereaux says Sharon is not trustworthy. Hub says Sharon is, is dead. She gave her life, which of course with the scene we just read would have meant a lot more at, at this moment. Um, he then takes a piece of paper from his pocket and says, this is a writ from the U.S. District Court releasing all those being held here without habeas corpus. And they argue and they go back and forth very much um, uh, very much like they did in the movie. Um, Humbeshin's about clear violation of international law, congressional oversight statutes, a couple of treaties, the federal perjury statute, and my favorite, the Logan Act, for conducting your own personal foreign policy. I know the whole story, General. Um, 
And then Devereaux says, you don't know shit. Poor suffering Sharon and her poor suffering people. This is, here's the start of the, the unincluded line. It's called, quote unquote, going native, the most elementary error of an intelligence operative, and she made it. She had all of you working for her, and she was working for them without even knowing it. And now they're getting exactly what they want, which is the sheik will be back in the mix. But ten times it's strong, because now he's the big man who stood up to Americans. Um... I did what was necessary. I make no apologies. If you think you're going to be able to use that file against me, you know even less about politics than I imagined. Um, and he, Hub says, General, I'm not in politics. You can have this back. I won't use it. And he hands him the file that the chief of staff gave him that would have given him everything he needed to legally take down um, Devereaux and the, and the occupation of, of the military. And Devereaux is like, because you don't have the balls to go after him. Did you expect me to get all weepy with gratitude? You serve your country. Um, is there anything else? Um, and Hub said, I wasn't in politics. I said I wasn't in politics. I'm not. I'm in law enforcement. And then he takes his gun from his shoulder holster, which didn't happen in the movie. Denzel was just standing there and the other agents came in with their um, with their weapons drawn, but I mean, he's, he's in a room filled with soldiers carrying assault rifles and he, before anybody else takes out his pistol and then he tells him, he says, William Devereaux, you're under arrest for the torture and murder of Tariq Husseini, um, surrender your weapon. And that's when they come in, um, they argue a little bit about, I serve my country, why don't you try serving yours? Um, uh, Bruce Willis says, you know, I am the law. Um, and then Denzel goes into his, uh, you have the right to remain, uh, silent. You have the right to an attorney. You have the right to not be tortured, not be murdered. Rights that you took away from Tariq Husseini. You have those rights given by the men and women who came before you in that uniform. Of course, this wasn't what was in the original script. A lot of that extra stuff, men and women in uniform and having those rights that, that wasn't included in the initial one. Um, so they, they, they made this whole cowboy standoff more pointed than it should have been, but it absolutely lacked that whole context. And also this also brings in the whole thing with the judge that this would have been after the original script had him meeting with the judge for the second time trying to get a warrant. And in that time, he had all the evidence he needed, and so the process was much simpler. But without it, we're not actively seeing uh, Hub trying to fight these other centers of power to do what he needs to do and the pushback that he gets. Um, and so we're left with cowboy standoff, give him the order general, tell him to make these, make murderers out of these young kids. And then he, uh, he, he says, send down Sergeant and he lets them take him into custody. And the movie ends literally with the army driving away across the Brooklyn bridge. And I'm like, what? You, I mean, it, it, I understand that the troops wouldn't start firing on FBI agents and stuff. That makes sense. But why is it that within minutes of this thing happening that the Army gets in their tanks and trucks and, okay, we're out. They told us they're, they're, we're, we're not needed here anymore or whatever. Right, it and is, just all the kids are leaving or the people are leaving the stadium and you get yep, to see Frank and his son. Yep. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is such a nice, yep. like, like wrapped up with a bow. And, but you're just like, 
like what the fuck like there's all these unanswered questions and all the like the main you know point of the movie like uh, you know we never see the shake we never understand we there's no wrapping up of like the actual thing that was driving the plot no yeah no no confirmation from the army that they did in fact get the last cell which i'm sure some of them were probably concerned about yeah well and, and particularly that thing with them driving back over the bridge i mean that is an efficiency probably unheard of in the u.s army oh lord yes <laughs> one thing um, <laughs> Yeah, we would have also been there just for from, a, two from like a logistics point of view. They yeah, they yeah. invaded an entire yeah. borough of Manhattan. Ten thousand yeah. people. Quite a long time to unwind and dismantle. It, does. it really does. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the, an entire a division is ten thousand soldiers, yeah. right? But uh, yeah, I was I think he said he said ten thousand seven hundred men. Um, yeah. But we're also it's it's also really pushing the assumption that okay, our the legality for us being here has ended. We're going to go home. That's not what happens. That's not what yeah. happens at all. And it could have, you know, taken another 10 minutes and kind of worked through that a little bit. And we could have gotten these other scenes, but they would have been much more earned. But instead, we're left with this, you know, okay, he, he told him we can't do anymore. And so I guess soldiers are going to go home. No, they're not. But that, that's what we want people to think. We want we want people to think that military leaders, that law enforcement officers, they come up against these hardened points of morality and they say, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing this stupid thing you want me to do because it's illegal, it's immoral, it's anti-American, whatever it is. And that's not what happens. We have yes men. And Devereaux is one of those yes men. All of the entire apparatus that he's dealing with in this movie would have been knowable by people above him in the echelon. So the idea that he, I mean, it, it, you know, presidents don't always know everything, but they usually can access anything that they want to, but we, we can't. Right. They would it. get the information to know what kind of person he was and like what, yeah. and it's, yeah, it's just, again, this like American rah-rah, like the individual who believes in justice and the law, like triumphs over bad people. And it's like the nuance is just cut out. Well, and to go, to go back to that line that you highlighted earlier, Henry, about uh, the most committed wins. Mm, yeah. Well, who is actually most committed in this ending scenario? What if you have two opposing forces that are both equally committed? Mm -hmm. What yeah. happens then? <laughs> um, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm not just saying that as a kind of, you know, tree falling in the forest kind of thought experiment. I'm saying what kind of sense can we make out of a statement like that? Because... Right. What actually triumphs in this movie? Yeah. Who actually, I mean, who triumphs? I guess you could say it's ultimately Denzel Washington's character, sort of. Um, but in terms of this is supposed to be about the struggle between different attitudes to a certain extent, different mentalities, but also different approaches to this insurgent problem of this terrorist organization. Yeah. Though it does also seem at the end they're not strictly terrorists, they're just seeking violent retribution. They're not yeah. actually like, there's no political goal here. They're just kind of blowing some stuff up and killing some people because that's what happened to them. Um, yeah, which again, like, is cutting the nuance out and cutting yeah. out the motivation and like, like a real human's uh, motivation. It's like us saying um, people at the at the Capitol siege had no legitimate criticisms, you know, have no legitimate reasons as to why they're doing that, not to defend what they're doing, but that, you know, they, the economics are a big part of it, the, the, and they just cut all of that out. What if there were more cells left in the city? 
What if they assumed that was the last cell and there was two or three more of them? We didn't get any closure to any of that. Well, and, and like, what happens to Devereaux after he's arrested? Right. Yep. Could, could we try? at least have, you know, just a, a 10 second shot of him in a courtroom being sworn yeah. in or, you know, something for heaven's something. sake. Yeah. Um, yeah. To, to imply that, you know, this had consequences. This, was, this had a lasting effect. There was traumatic echoes of what had happened here, um, which is what would actually happen in that scenario. You know, that would, people would still be feeling that 10 years later. Yeah. Um, yeah. Instead, it's just sort of, we kind of pushed the button and reversed everything. It's like, you know, uh, uh, you know, after the Civil War, when Lincoln reinstituted habeas corpus, that it wasn't just like he wrote wrote a letter that went out to the entire country and everything just magically shifted in one go. Um, and and to be honest, that was ultimately ruled unlawful anyway. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> without getting bogged down in all of that, you take my point that you know yeah, once yeah. you've made that decision to take such an extreme step, you cannot just unwind it easily. That's one of the whole problems with authoritarianism and with state power is it's actually remarkably difficult to pare it back, even when there's like a mass movement in support of that, even when there is political will to do that. Yeah. It's still there is the institutional resistance. There is the cultural resistance. There's a whole bunch of other factors as well, just from a like practical point of view as to, well, if we're not allowed to do this anymore, what do we actually do? Yeah. Um, you know, all of these things make that so ludicrously unrealistic. And for a film that tries, it tries so hard to remain grounded in a, what would this actually look like? Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's almost a thought experiment of a movie, like what would this actually be like if this happened? And in so many places, it manages to touch on something that you think, yeah, there's some thought gone into this. Um, there's some real intelligence and, and, you know, subtlety of the human condition that's gone into this. And in so many other mo moments, that is completely undermined by, you know, just dunderheaded bad writing and bad directing. And I have a feeling a lot of these cuts that you're talking about from the last, ultimately, like the last 10 minutes of the movie, I think they were partly just trying to speed up the ending. They were yeah. trying to get to a quick, easy, simple resolution. But it's like, no, if you're going to tell this story, you're never going to have a quick, easy, simple resolution. It's always going to linger. It's always going to be a bit compl complicated, and people are going to come away from this not quite sure how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. So embrace that. Yes. Embrace yes. that complexity and that nuance and that subtlety. And you'll have a much richer movie that's really about something. Yeah. Right, um, and then people would leave the theater thinking about it and they would be thinking about what their role is in that and how they would think about it in the situation. And like you said, Tom, like if that is the point, if the point is to be grounded in reality, like fuck, there's your ending. Like that's the best way to do it. Absolutely. And this really isn't, I mean, none of us are professional screenwriters, for heaven's sake, but we can all see that's the better way to end this film, if that's what you're really honestly trying to do here. And I have a feeling that script that you've read, um, evidently an early script, was much more ambitious in what it was trying to do. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, I think a combination of the studio and the FBI who worked on this film stripped out a lot of the best stuff and reduced this to... Again, it's something America that's kind of, good. <laughs> I mean, is this a good film or not? Um, it's hard <laughs> to say. 
I, I honestly don't know how I feel about this film because there are so many good things about it and so many terrible things about it that I'm left uncertain as to what the hell this movie even is, let alone whether I think it's a good thing that it exists. Um, hard to say for me. I'm glad that he was able to do the Lumen Tower because I feel like at the end of that miniseries, you do feel that way. You do feel like, okay, we see how we got to 9-11 and like the, the choices that we made or that people made in order to get here. Yeah. And you, you end like, you know what happens already. So it's not like you're surprised, but like that, that like added it, added to it for me. Like when I finished that, I was just like, I was left feeling that way about like, fuck, like here's all the choices that we made collectively and people made individually. And you know, what could we do to prevent these things from happening it, you know, like it left you thinking that way, and it's frustrating that in a movie that you know was was really it was really ambitious to talk about you know the the United States military occupying a part of it of like the biggest city in America, mm. and yeah, it's just disappointing that they wanted to turn it into this like easy, simple like America good, terrorism bad, and like people shouldn't people should follow the law basically well and sort of underpinning that is this whole the only good muslims are the ones that are wholly on the side of law enforcement or ideally working for law enforcement yeah because yeah. Yeah. basically every other muslim in this entire thing is either a terrorist or just a sort of random guy on the street who gets swept into a football stadium that's it, that's it. That's it. No, no, it, it's it's very clear, both seeing what they removed and the final product of the movie as to why so many Arab Americans, and I'm sure other Arabs that saw it in other places, found it, um, it didn't represent them in any, in any concrete way, in anything that we would look at and say, this seems like a fully formed person, even if they are the bad guy we at least have some understanding. And and I, I thought the, the mention about Iran was, you know, for Wright's part was really ambitious because that is the reality and the reality that we've lived with since the main part of the war in Iraq ended, although we still have, have troops there, that, you know, this was very common knowledge that Iraq was, its its stability at being able to, to be stable was holding back Iran. But not so much that Bush, Cheney, Wolfowitz, any of those those dickheads were um, willing to admit that reality, were willing to to actually work within that. They had their own their own ambitions, but the reality was the same. And I'm guessing this was written. It came out in '98, so it had to have been written, you know, '95, '96, quite a long time before you know mission accomplished. Um, but I, I thought it was bold that it was in there. So, yeah, but it, it makes perfect sense why it was all pared down. Like I said, we're saved for time, remove the most nascent elements that actually give a little bit of context but are unappealing to the Bureau or the federal government uh, more in general. Um, and pushing, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a good, good guy in Denzel and a good, bad guy in Devereaux and that back and forth. And even that isn't really established too much because you don't get, you only get that one scene with just the two of them. And I could see them, you know, getting into a fist fight in a room by themselves, having this kind of argument. Even that would have been better context than what, what they gave mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and for a story that's supposed to be about how we've talked about this before, the difference between an intelligence-based approach to a counterinsurgency mm. and a military-based approach. Um, this is a film that is okay. It's talking about counterterrorism, not counterinsurgency, but whatever. It's the same basic power it's, dynamic. It's basically the same, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's supposed to be a film about how much better the intelligence-based approach is. But does anyone actually achieve anything in this film using that approach? Oh. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, honestly, it's uh, all the things that they get are are through the you know the bold action and the not caring about consequences bullshit. Mm. Yeah, it's not, and, and and also is that Elise doesn't tell give Hub enough information early enough in the movie to actually push back some of this because if she had had said that whole her training these guys in Iraq thing much uh, sooner, there would have been intelligence there that they would have been able to grab onto because it came, you know, two-thirds of the movie are already done when she has this mea culpa moment. Um, that, that doesn't, it's entirely a non-issue. I do find that a little bit curious, that how is it that Lawrence Wright or someone who worked on this movie decided we're going to cast a female red-haired CIA officer who is withholding information from the FBI? How did they know that was going on in 1998? Because that's, exa that's exactly what Alfredo Francis Bukowski was doing at Alex Station um, yeah, at this time, yeah. as is depicted in The Looming Tower. Um, right, I was just thinking, I was like, they, they must really dislike the CIA. I mean, it's not hard to dislike the CIA, because if anybody's done any cursory fucking research on what the agency has done over the years, knows that they're terrible. But it's just, wow. Like... <laughs> It was it's just so on point because you've clearly got yeah. this cast of characters that are based on John O'Neill, Mark Rossini, Ali Soufan. There's a couple mm -hmm. of others in there that certainly they were people in the I-49 squad in the FBI building in New York, just as they are in the movie. You also have this CIA character who seems so much like Bukowski, it's unreal because no one who... In, in like 96, when, or whenever we're presuming this, this screenplay was written, no one knew who, knew who Bukowski was. Alex Station had barely <laughs> been founded at that point. So um, maybe that is just one of those really weird coincidences, um, which it could be. But well, that I is something I came away from this, fil this film wondering about, was like just how much inside information did they have when they were first putting this together? Oh, I think it's just, it's so easy to see, like, the CIA, like, pre-9-11, the CIA and the FBI were, like, you know, they, they were, like, oil and vinegar, and they, like, it just, it, like, like I said in the beginning, like, it blows my mind the way that, like, everyone was so compartmentalized with information, and it, it's still, I mean, things are, like, that's the whole point of the community, is, like, everyone has need to know, and you have to have specific uh, clearance in a specific read-in to know a specific thing, but like when it comes to operations, there's a lot more latitude nowadays about sharing information just because we saw, like people saw all the bullshit of like trying to do operations with incomplete facts. So that's something that's been around a long time, and I think that the writers like totally picked up on that. 
Oh, that is a theme. Sure, sure. That's where they're coming from. It was more that character herself. I can't, because, you know, she's basically the same character as in Zero Dark Thirty. She's kind of the same character as Carrie Matheson, who is mm-hmm. <laughs> loosely <laughs> based on Francis Bukowski in the same way that Saul Berenson is loosely based on Michael Scheuer. Um, it, 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 I mean, it has to be a coincidence. I can't believe Lawrence Wright knew that at the time, because no one knew that there was this, you know, redheaded senior officer at Alex Station in the CIA who was intimately involved in withholding all this information from the FBI. It has to be a weird coincidence, but it is a weird one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, fellows, I think, uh, I think that's a a good place for us to to call it a day. Um, Tom, you, you have a, uh, a documentary coming out pretty soon. Um, Would you tell the folks a little bit about that and where they can find it when it comes out? Sure, sure. The documentary is called Theatres of Command. It's being directed by Roger Stahl, who wrote Militainment Inc. and has made a bunch of other, they've written a bunch of books and documentaries as well, and is being co-produced by me and Matt, who wrote National Security Cinema, which um, I imagine most people are familiar with. That's probably the most famous thing I've ever done. Um, It's essentially started out as a documentary version of the book but it's expanded quite considerably beyond that simply because we have so many so much more information now so many more documents so much more of everything and so it's more of a exploration of how the whole military and to some extent CIA relationship with Hollywood works and specifically what the purpose of this is in terms of sanitizing war, in terms of remediating screwed up events so that they start to look like successes. Um, There's a whole number of themes that we draw out in the documentary about what actual effect has all of this had in terms of shaping people's perceptions of these institutions and of war policies and intelligence and security policies and so on. And uh, has been delayed several times to be honest partly due to covid things and frankly if it came out now no one would see it in if it even if we could get it into cinemas no one could see it so that's not really a problem um (laughs) it's sometime in the coming months certainly by the summer it should be out it's being distributed by mef the media and uh media education foundation so it will be available on their site in dvd form there will obviously be links on my site spyculture.com and we're hoping to get some screenings and maybe some live Q&A events going around the release of the documentary to sort of help spread the word. Yeah, I mean, keep an eye on my site, spyculture.com, if you're interested in any of my work, but particularly this documentary, and you'll see the news as soon as it's available. I'll, you know, I'll stick up a big banner so everyone knows. Well, I'll, uh, I'll uh, include a link for the, uh, for the trailer in the show notes so if you guys want to take a take a quick peek before it comes out uh please do that um and and please everyone let us know what you thought of uh you thought of this episode um i hope that it's been a a good education in in trying to understand that that you know sometimes there are good stories out there good legitimate ones that get pared down and diluted and filled full of crap to the point that it like what Tom's mentioned numerous times, it's like, how do I even really feel about this particular product? Because it goes back and forth in so many different ways. But um, thank you guys for uh, for joining us today, and uh, we will see you next time. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. 
can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be.